Hello everyone, I'm Courtney Harler and this is PWN's Debut Review. Crystal A. Satal and Peter Mountford join me for episode 4 of season 5. Crystal A. Satal is the author of the memoir Secrets We Kept, Three Women of Trinidad, a finalist for the PEN America Emerging Writers Award. Her essays have been anthologized in A Map is Only One Story, 20 Writers on Immigration, Family, and the Meaning of Home, as well as Fury, Women's Lived Experiences in the Trump Era. Her work has also been featured in the New York Times, Elle, The Huffington Post, Today's Parent, Salon, Catapult, Lit Hub, and elsewhere. Crystal currently teaches nonfiction writing. Peter Mountford is the author of two novels, A Young Man's Guide to Late Capitalism, which won the 2012 Washington State Book Award in Fiction, and The Dismal Science, which was named a New York Times Editor's Choice. His work has appeared in the Paris Review, the Southern Review, the Atlantic, the Sun, Granta, the Missouri Review, and Writer's Digest. Peter is also a writing coach and developmental editor. In this episode, we discuss writing a collaborative code-switching memoir, learning through failure, ways to capture and hold the reader's attention, and using voice, language, point of view, and setting to craft vivid, engaging, authentic prose on the page. So don't look away. Here are Crystal A. Satal and Peter Mountford. Today, I'd like to welcome Crystal Satal and Peter Mountford. Both are writers who are also who also currently teach for the MFA at the University of Nevada, Reno at Lake Tahoe, formerly known as Sierra Nevada College slash University, also my alma mater, where I did my MFA. It's really wonderful to speak with both of you today. And if it's okay with you both, I'll just jump into our seed pod segment. And we'll start with Crystal. So Crystal, what made you want to write memoir and tell us the name of your book too? Okay, so the the name of my book is Secrets We Kept, Three Women of Trinidad. And I worked on that book for 10 years. And when I first started, I didn't know it was memoir. I had no idea what memoir was until I stumbled into this memoir class by a leading Italian-American scholar and a memoirist. Her name is Edvige Junta, and she teaches at New Jersey City University in Jersey City. And she said to me, is this, is this nonfiction or is this fiction? And I said, it's all nonfiction. And she said, well, why are you presenting it as though it's fiction? And I said, because I didn't know that you could write this as nonfiction. I didn't know the term memoir. I didn't know that you could, could write a book like this and present it to the world as is. And she said, Okay, so from here on out, let's let's start looking at the importance of a book like this in the world. And I really I really didn't understand what what she meant until I don't know, maybe 5 years into writing the book and I started to really research Trinidad and Tobago and understand that a lot of what a lot of the literature that comes from there but also from the Caribbean as a whole, while a lot of it is steeped in truth and real stories, they're presented to the world as fiction. And 
that's when I started to realize how important these women's voices were. Because while this is memoir, it's a multi-generational memoir, and it follows three women in my family. It follows me, my mother, and my grandmother, and the stories that take us from the Caribbean to America. And understanding that history and understanding oral storytelling for women in the Caribbean, that allowed me to see the importance of writing this book and preserving it as nonfiction in the world. That's so interesting. It's, it's such a journey for the book. And, and I think you started this when you were in your undergrad as well. I and did. Then, that was, yeah. you know, thinking back now, it feels like forever ago. Yeah. Uh, and then how many years did it take to complete the memoir? From the minute, from the time I started with the first sentence to the time it hit the bookshelves, it, that was 10 years. Well, I mean, it's it's a long journey, but as we've, you know, we've had talks with other artists, namely recently Alan Heathcock, his, you know, his two books both took about 10 or 12 years. Like, uh, you know, art takes time takes a lot of time. And, you know, if it's worthwhile, then you you can put in the time and you can stick with it. So we're really happy to see this. I'm really happy to see this book in the world. Um, I've been reading it this past week. Um, I haven't quite gotten to the end, but I feel like I know how it turns out for you, Crystal, because <laughs> you have a, a lovely husband and a lovely family. So thank you for sharing the story of this book with us. So you you started out thinking that you were a fiction writer and then realized that you were really a memoirist. And is that something that continues now? Do you continue to write nonfiction or do you, do you go back and forth? How do you approach your process now? I took a break from memoir writing a whole project. I've taken a step back from writing long memoir nonfiction projects because it was the collaborative memoir was very exhausting And it took a long time because there were three people involved in writing this book, the first book. And so I took a step back and I've been writing fiction for the last four years. But at the same time, I I haven't fully taken a step back because I still write nonfiction essays along the way. I just can't help myself, apparently. You know, that was another question that I had. The the, um, attention to detail and dialogue is so specific in your memoir. And I, I did wonder if you sat down, like, like as you, as you are, as the narrator in the book, sitting at the kitchen table, if you literally did that and your mother and grandmother told you these stories, or if that was kind of just a a framework you used to, to present the story to the reader. Well, when I, when I first started, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what would work best. So I tried a few different things. I tried recording them as we were speaking, but then we would talk and my mom in particular was very disruptive with this where she knew the recording device was there. And so she started changing the way she sounded to, instead of just comfortably talking to me in Creole, she started speaking with her, with an accent. She's, you know, standard American English as best as she could. It was very strange. And so I found myself laughing a lot and I I would look at her and I would say, just, just be, you know, just be, and let's talk like we usually do. I have these questions. And so I'd ask her the question. She's so aware 
that there's something there recording her that she couldn't, she couldn't focus. So I got rid of that. And then I tried interviewing her, asking questions with a notebook and she would get so distracted, even my grandmother. So what did you write? What are you writing there? You know? (laughs) So I got rid of the notebook and then, you know, just understanding that people are comfortable around food especially my family. They show their love through food and cooking for one another. So I I think eventually I tapped into, let's do this while they're cooking, while they're busy, while I'm helping them. And so there's this act of love that we're doing together. And with their guard down, they're so comfortable that the stories just flowed. And so I just had to let them talk and then immediately lock myself in a room and just write everything that they said down and try to remember it as best as I could. So that was the best way out of all of the different things that I tried. That's so I think that I think of that as like this. I mean, you've seen I've seen this in other things where it seems like sometimes a certain amount of fictionalizing a thing makes it more true and it seems kind of counter sort of counterintuitive but sometimes i found that too like if you're trying to remain absolutely true to the truth like a journalist it sometimes misses the intimacy and kind of specificity of real life and it's interesting when you see i have like students or clients who will go from writing personal essays to writing kind of reported essays for Washington Post or whatever. And there's just that higher standard of truth and quotation that's required for a newspaper. And there's something just lost. Like there's something that totally is lost in terms of the realness and the truth of it in a weird way, even though ostensibly it's more true. Well, it changes the voice a lot. It changes the whole work. Uh, it it definitely um, it flattens the prose in a way that is sort of I, I guess it's the emotion that's missing right it's the mm-hmm. it's the empathy it's the emotional connect. I wanted to also comment on the code switching that's happening in your memoir, which I think is just absolutely fantastic. It's you know the narration is in one voice and then the dialogue is in another. How did that feel for you when you were writing? And did that feel like a natural choice to you to to fully fully engage and represent the Creole? I guess I'm just curious about the those choices. And I, I think it's amazing. And I think it's it's so vibrant on the page, you know, again, something that might be lost in a more like journalistic type of approach. I'm so glad that you like it. So many people have such strong emotions about that. They actually come up to me and tell me how much they hate it and how much they think it doesn't work. And then I've had some people reach out and say, did you even do any research on this book? It doesn't sound real at all. Did you talk to any Trinidadians? And I'm like, hello, I grew up there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it, what is people's complaint? Are they, what well, I see that complaint, but is other people complaining that they find it like hard to follow or what? So some people find it hard to follow. Some people really love it. Some people think, um, what, did, what was this one? She thought that it didn't sound like how Trinidadians speak at all. And 
I'm standing there and I'm speaking that way, you know, and I'm, so I did a lot, I did a lot of research just for this one decision on the book. I read a lot of Caribbean writers, Edwidge Dandekat, Zadie Smith, to name just Roxane Gay, just to name a few of them and how they put language on the page to decide how I wanted to put language on the page. And then what kept tripping me up is grammatically, so standard American English is one way and then Creole is a completely different way. So in writing these scenes where I'm writing sometimes pages of Creole, I then, the the, the grammatical structure of Creole then leaks into my uh, my writing, my standard English. And I had to keep giving this to other people. And I was terribly embarrassed because now I'm thinking they think I can't write standard English because the speak the way I speak and then the way I write are two completely different things. And they just keep leaking over into one another. So eventually I had to sit down with just a Creole and then sit down with just the English to make sure that they were, they were working in the structure that they needed to work in. And then I had to put them together to see if there was some kind of flow that works between them. But then I started to realize that this is who I am on the page. When I'm talking to you, I speak like this. If I'm speaking to my family or I'm speaking to another Trinidadian person or someone from the Caribbean, it, I won't I won't sound anything like this at all. And so there is that kind of code switching. And I wanted that to show on the page because I'm speaking to my family. That's how they speak. And because this was a book on capturing oral st- storytelling, I couldn't then take their voices out of the work. So it was it was very difficult. I looked to uh, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God and how she wrote in the vernacular for, from the beginning all the way to the end. And it was something I considered doing, but then I taught her work along the way of this long journey. I started teaching uh, undergrad and I taught this book and I realized that my students either really, really hated it or they really, really loved it. And I wanted to find some kind of happy medium where I could reach both. And that's where this marrying of the way I write and present myself in a professional setting is coupled with the way I speak at home. Well, I'll go on the record as saying I loved it. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I love language and I and I and I like challenges in language as well. You know, I like I like that you asked me, you know, as a reader to to sink into the Creole and allow it to be what it needed to be on the page. And yeah, you asked me to do a little more work, you know, not having a familiarity with that particular accent or that particular way of speech. But I was thoroughly engaged by it. Like I appreciated it. I think it it might depend upon how much work the reader is willing to do. And I, I am a very hardworking reader, just not only from, you know, I have an MA in literature and an MFA in fiction. I was, you know, taught to work hard as a reader. And, but I also just really enjoy it. Like there's a reason that, you know, I pursued this field. I, I really enjoy language and I, I enjoy um, world Englishes and the way that different people from different parts of the world approach our language. And what I don't enjoy is teaching or coaching. I, I'm a book coach too. Co- teaching or coaching in such a way that I feel like I'm colonizing a voice. And so to see someone who's really, you know, authentically embodying a voice, 
um, on the page is like, like to me, it's just like cheer worthy, right? To me, it's just something that absolutely should be celebrated. So that is a long winded way of saying I really loved it. <laughs> yeah. it, makes me, it also makes me think of uh, something that Juno Diaz once said, I think when people were complaining about all of the Spanish in his books and, and he basically said like, you read Lord of the Rings and there's Elvish in there. Like you don't complain about that. Like I assume you don't know what Elvish. Yeah. Right. Right. There's a lot of context there, but, but the way that Crystal's done it, you can definitely just sort of sink into the rhythms of it. It is perfectly understandable. I think there was, you know, to someone from, you know, from the outside white lady like me, but there's, I, I think there was only like one or two where I had to go back and be like, okay, now, now what is like, I sounded it out and it finally came to me, you know, there was only really one or two times where I had to really think about, you know, so it's, you know, with, with the Creole, it's not just, you know, that the spelling's different. It's the, the construction is different. The approach to language is different. Yeah. And I, I loved it. I, I just really enjoyed the activity of it. Um, I like, I like, you know, work, work that makes me work. I like work that's participatory. And, and I think you have those readers out there, Crystal, and then maybe you just have some readers who want to, you know, kind of skate through the read. But this is not a book you skate through. Like, this is some serious subject matter. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. I, 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 I like you, I enjoy learning something in a, in a book that I read. And I really enjoy when a writer challenges me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, speaking of challenges, like if, if you look at Peter's bio, um, Peter, you were in international relations. And I think maybe your first undergrad degree was in that arena as well. And then at some point along your career, you're, you're writing novels. So tell us about that, that switch. Like, tell us about your genesis as a creative writer. I think it's like for many people, the same thing where I, at an early age, was always sort of secretly a writer. I was always viewing my life in a way that I was kind of gathering material and I sort of understood the world as a writer. Um, I lived for a few years as a child in Sri Lanka and came back with, you know, this thing called a a third culture kid where you are just very much an observer and not a participant in life um, after you live abroad for a few years and then return home. And so I had that. And then I think I, you know, I grew up in DC and people around me, I never knew a novelist or a writer. It didn't seem like a viable kind of way to make a living. And so I just thought I would do something more sensible and, so I got a degree in international relations and I started working at a very shady think tank uh, out of college as they one of their token liberals. They had two of us, both like wildly unqualified. Uh, I was like, I think, you know, 22 years old or something. And they made me an adjunct fellow. And I mean, it was just laughable. They were paying me $8 an hour. Um, but it was interesting. Like I would write a piece and like an, a report and then it would be the subject of a of an article in the wall street journal or something. It was because nobody knew that I was, you know, just this little kid uh, who didn't know what he was doing. Anyways, it was interesting. uh, But I, I always kind of didn't feel right in there. And I knew that I needed, I saw the whole time I was still sort of gathering material and thinking about writing. And so I quit eventually. And by then I'd had a fairly colorful life. I'd lived in Ecuador for a couple of years writing for them and 
other things had happened. And I just started trying to write fiction, finally, belatedly. Um, and uh, it just, the, I remember the very first day I tried and it was just the most euphoric feeling being like on the page and kind of lost inside of the characters. And it, you know, the writing was terrible, but like it was nonetheless an exhilarating experience of actually writing. And so, and I guess I was buoyed by like, I had had such easy success with my think tank thing. Like I just like stumbled out of college into a kind of a fancy job. And I figured incorrectly that writing would be much the same. And it was a sort of a sad misunderstanding on my part. Uh, a very unfortunate one anyways. Um, I'd known a writer and I met one finally and he was quite successful in Scotland and he had, you know, just been a train driver and he'd written a novel on the side and suddenly he was, you know, drinking champagne and eating caviar. And I was like, wow, this is pretty wild. So apparently you can do this. Anyways, it was a, a I was again, like poor information. I, I didn't really get what was going on. So I tried and failed pretty spectacularly for quite a long time. I think it was like seven years of consecutive rejections. And I wrote a couple novels that were quite bad. I wrote a lot of short stories that were also kind of boring and unreadable. Um, I tried writing some personal essays that were similar stuff. And I finally got an MFA. I graduated at the University of Washington uh, at age 30 with just this mountain of rejections. Um, I had applied to 13 MFA programs and only got into that one. And they gave me the least amount of funding from all the students in the class because I guess they deemed me to be the least promising. Oh. Uh, <laughs> this is so sad, Peter. <laughs> I, I mean, like, I, you know, all right. I was all right. Um, <laughs> what a dreary okay. picture he's painting. Oh, my goodness. It was very, it was kind of humiliating, I got to say. And then, um, but somewhere along the line, I guess I had learned this lesson that, like, yeah, like, editors aren't that interested in this stuff that I'm sending them. And I need to sort of knock them down on the first sentence and hold their attention and absolutely sort of, I got to try harder. I got to basically do something that's irresistibly interesting. And so I started writing stories then that began to get published and win awards. And uh, the next novel I wrote, I got a great agent and a book deal very quickly. And then I wrote another novel and started publishing a lot of essays and a ton of short stories. And it's all, you know, gone reasonably well since then, you know, but yeah, it was, uh, it took me a while to kind of just that realization of like how um, engaging essentially a piece needs to be. Like I was before that writing pieces about like, you know, some guy who works at Starbucks and he has some like very minor, <laughs> very, very minor revelation on page 16 of the story. And like, it's just like, like who cares? He's mostly just like sweeping floors and like staring out the window. It's not particularly interesting. And so I tried to make them more eventful and interesting. So I think, Peter, when, when I've taken your courses, it's, you know, first rule of thumb is uh, don't be boring. Right. Don't That's be boring. Saying, yeah. yeah. And follow up, please, please go ahead and remind our listeners of the names of your two novels on the market right now. Oh, yeah. Um, A Young Man's Guide to Late Capitalism is the first one, which came out in 2011. Um, And then the second novel is The Dismal Science, which came out in 2014. Uh, And I'm at work on a third book now, a third novel. And uh, and yeah, as I said, a bunch of stories and essays. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get to that next. So I do want to hear some of what you've published recently, Peter, or, or whatever, whatever you would like to read from would, would you read for us first and then we'll jump back to crystal and maybe she'll read an excerpt as well. Sure. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, I changed my mind at the last minute what I'm going to read. So I'm going to read from a story that came out of four years ago, I think, in um, and it was in the Paris Review, and it's called Pay Attention. And it's a very long story. I'm just going to read the opening few pages. But Vivian spends most of the afternoon naked and strapped to the giant ottoman in his office in Bethesda. When he finally unties her, the sun is low and she's shaky and exhausted. He paddled her hard at some point. That hot stinging is what hurts the most as they clutch each other on his cool leather sofa and slowly return to themselves. The final hour of their session, she struggled to remain present despite the pain because she'd remembered that she needs to ask for a refund from Silver Stars, her youngest son's gymnastics camp. They have a draconian refund policy, which she's dealt with before. Staring at his burgundy pants puddled around his ankles as he stood over her, she'd contemplated what she might say to Samantha, the manager at Silver Stars. She shouldn't have registered so early, but July sessions fill quickly, and now it turns out that one conflicts with her in-law's family reunion in the Catskills. Hurrying back to her car in the frozen stillness of dusk in late winter, that old hollow sensation sinking as the endorphins recede, she calls Silver Stars. Hey, Samantha, she says, with as much grim resolve as possible. It's Vivian, and I'm really sorry to do this again, but something's come up. That evening, the kids are in bed, and Vivian's husband silently inspects the bruises and lacerations on her ass. It isn't clear if he feels anything, although she finds it humiliating to show him. They're going to have sex, or that's the idea, but he starts talking about the new president's pick for education secretary, who, he says, is a perfect distillation of all that's wrong with this administration. How so, Vivian says. Now it's her genes at her ankles. Her husband is meaty and bearded, strong and fat at the same time, like a retired athlete. He's sitting up on their bed in his boxer shorts, his thick legs crossed at the ankle. He glances occasionally out the window at the darkness behind their house. She's just looking out for herself. The education secretary? He nods. Her husband is a lawyer and a senior fellow at a left-leaning think tank that specializes in education policy, and he's taken the election hard. At first, he spent hours every day wincing at Facebook. It's been a month since the inauguration, and he's finally beginning to relax. You can get used to anything, they say. And it's true. Acclimating is what people do best. It's not even about power, he says. She just wants to have the experience of being in charge. That sounds like power. But just the superficial stuff, he says. Like it's fun to fly around in a helicopter and people applaud when you enter the room. She pulls up her jeans. There's something different about his disgust here with one of the few women in the cabinet. But it's not a subject she cares to explore with him. Maybe these people will ruin everything, and in four years, the Dems will sweep and undo it all forever, she says. In the meantime, we're all fucked, he says. She smiles. Not me. Oh, I'm sorry, he says. I'm just not here. He shakes his head. Even his skull is colossal. Very few hats fit him. 
I can't stop thinking about these fucking lizards slithering around the White House. She wants to point out that they aren't lizards. They're people. He's not ready for that either. Instead, she says, lizards don't slither, snakes do. He frowns, staring out the window at nothing. Love that. I remember that story. You said that was in the Paris Review a few years ago? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you for joining us for Season 5 of PWN's Debut Review. This podcast is hosted by Project Right Now, a nonprofit writing studio. We would love for you to become part of our vibrant community of writers. As a gift for listening, please use the code DEBUT for 10% off a virtual class. You can learn more about all of our classes, workshops, and events at projectrightnow.org. That's right, W-R-I-T-E, projectrightnow.org. Thank you so much. So something that I feel like you do so well, Peter, is third person, which I'm an editor-in-chief of a lit mag now and have been reading for lit mags for several years. Third person is often so heavy-handed, right? It's just so, it's so like over-narrated, but your third person is so measured. It's so like, you need to know, like you tell the reader what they need to know when they need to know it. And I, that's such a talent. I don't like, how did you, how did you cultivate that talent and how did you find a way to do third person that it's not, that's not so overly telling, right? Like, like, you know, third person in, in, you know, less experienced writers is usually like, I'm going to tell you this story. And it's like in your face, you're being told something. And I take offense to that because like we talked about with Crystal, I like a story that's a lot more participatory that asks me to work. I don't want to be told a story necessarily as much as I want to be drawn in and shown a scenario or shown a scene. For me, third person limited like that. I, I, I do like it a lot. And I kind of view it as a bit like first person. I mean, it has a little bit more flexibility than first person. Get away with stuff in that kind of point of view that would seem maybe cheesy or heavy handed in first person. In third person, it's sort of, I don't know how, it sort of takes some of the weird flavors out of it that might be there if you just swap pronouns. It would sort of clang. It wouldn't sound good. And so it's a, I kind of enjoy it for that way, but it, um, I do think of it as kind of method acting. Like I just am inside this character and trying to remain mostly in the scene or if there's a scene and then, you know, there's this sort of subtle thing of sneaking information in front of the reader when they're not really paying attention so that they get oriented quickly. Because I think I see a lot with clients and students is when they've sort of overlearned the lesson of show, don't tell. They've learned this idea that you're supposed to just do scene, 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 scene. And then when you're reading, because there's never any information hiding between the lines, you're just kind of confused, you know? And I get really annoyed eventually when you're like, I don't really know what's going on. Like, I don't know if these people are indoors or outdoors or like what their relationship is. Is this the you know, father and the son, or is it like the doctor and the patient? Like, I don't understand basic stuff. And I think it's really important to get the a sort of a really clear understanding of the basic stuff really quickly and also get the source of conflict basically in front of the reader almost immediately. And, and otherwise you can, yeah, do the scenes and have fun. 
Yeah. And and I saw that at work as well in your more recent story, Love of Her Life, which was in the Missouri Review in the spring. Just a very like measured approach to balancing scene and setting, balancing dialogue, balancing interiority with exteriority. I mean, you can talk about it in a bunch of different ways. But like you said, like making it clear, like I guess you never want you never want your reader to fall out of the story, right? You never want them to be like, now where am I? Because then they're not in the story anymore. And and your work, I think, is particularly adept at that. Or you as a writer are particularly adept at keeping the reader in the story. So thank you. Thank you for sharing uh, the start of that story with us. I think we'll move into Crystal's excerpt now. I don't know if you want to read from the memoir or if you have something else more recent you'd you'd like to look at. Uh, What would you like to share with us, Crystal? I do have more recent things, but I didn't even think about them. Okay. When when you reached out, you're like, okay, we're going to talk about, I just figured we were going to talk about the book. And so I didn't entertain anything else. Is that okay? Yeah. I would love to hear you read from the book. I'm so excited for that. I was hoping you would. And I'm going to be really boring. I'm just reading from the opening pages, but I will tell you why. I place and surroundings is just always a character for me. I'm very I'm very moved by by place and I think that has to do with how quickly I put down roots wherever I go and how affected I am by where I'm living. It's I'm just deeply affected by place and I start really identifying with where I am. And so I I think that's why I want to read from the beginning, because I'm doing that again in this novel that I'm writing now. I'm so invested in place, and sometimes it becomes a hindrance because I'm so obsessed with it. And I think that's what I'm working through uh, in in what I'm writing right now. I'm working through some of those hurdles of when... When is it appropriate to write write this much about place? And when do I need to scale back? Okay, so it's just the opening pages, and I'm going to truncate it a bit uh, so it's not too long. So this is from Trinity. We are of Trinidad, my grandmother, my mother, and I. Our island is located in the Lesser Antilles of Paradise, a dot on the map that is often forgotten. It's like a drop of oil, some say, as though somebody forget to wipe it away. The bodies of water that seep into the island are as much a part of the island's identity as they are part of ours, and everywhere we have come to settle after abandoning home has been with the proximity of the seaside in mind. Perhaps the openness of the sea soothes the inner turmoil of us island women, or perhaps it shows the island's inability to contain us. While attending school in Trinidad, home, as we will call it for the rest of our lives, though we are all now settled in America, we're taught how Christopher Columbus discovered it in 1498. That the Carib and Arawak tribes were indigenous didn't stop historians from calling it a discovery. In conversation with Americans, I've heard my grandmother and mother draw the same facts from our elementary education, the same ones I mentioned to others today. Do you know why it's called Trinidad? It's because of the three hills along the southern coast of the island, Morn Derrick, Ross Morn, and Guaya Hill. When Columbus first spotted the land on July 31st in 1498, he was inspired to name it after the three hills, La Trinidad, the Trinity. 
These ternate hills that peak above the clouds in mottled green's picturesque majestic form a wall that breaks the patterns of the most ferocious hurricanes, a natural protection that no other island in the Caribbean owns. The Trinity represents our most powerful guardians. On our islands, you will find descendants of the Carib and Arawak tribes, Europeans, Venezuelans, Chinese, Syrians, French, Portuguese, and Lebanese, but of them all, the two largest groups by far are East Indians and Africans. Centuries before Trinidad became a British colony, before Sir Walter Raleigh discovered the natural pitch lake that gleamed the blackest blue along spools of water on Trinidad's knee, before Columbus spotted the island, Amerindians called it home. They called it Eyrie, land of the hummingbird. But when Columbus sailed upon them, these people were captured, enslaved, and littered along the coasts of other Caribbean islands, forced to work for Spain. Our island changed hands, and when the British captured it from Spain, they brought African slaves to work the leafy grounds of the sugar plantations. This was the only group of people to exist on the island as slaves. And when slavery was abolished in England, the wealthy landowners in Trinidad then brought indentured laborers from India to replace the Africans on the plantations. At least we get pay, the Indians now say. Dem niggas and dem come as slave. They know the history, but continue to etch in these lines drawn for them. They perpetuate a war. The East Indians and Africans, one group thinking they are better than the other. East Indian children rhyming in the schoolyard. Nigga, nigga, come for roti, all roti done. When the Indian raise gun, all the nigga run. And Africans taunting. Ini, mini, miny, mo, ketcha, coolie, baito. When he ready, let him go. Ini, mini, miny, mo. And so this enmity between Africans and Indians led them and others to maintain the perceived purity of their bloodlines, further carving hatred into our island's history. Interracial couples and their multiracial children are still shunned as they were in my mother's childhood and my grandmother's. The blended are labeled mulatto, dogla, cocopayol. These words are hissed and spat at my family. My grandmother is mixed. My Indian grandfather is not. Our stories are rooted in the Caribbean, our histories woven into its Bougainvillea trellises with their paper-thin petals, the lone road winding round and round the mountain like a serpent strangling a tree, coiling up and down again to the virgin beaches, untouched by hotels and tourists, crowds and money, the foliage so dense and green, it's a prismatic shade of malachite, almost as though the vegetation itself is choking the life out of the island. This is a place where the intoxicating aroma of curry drapes itself around you in layers, where bacon shark sandwiches are fried on the beach, where the main ingredient for every dish is the heady bandanya, our word for culantro. No, not cilantro. It is much stronger than that. Here, people devour every part of every animal from the eyeballs to the guts and lick their fingers and pat their bellies when they are through. The island can be traversed in a day less than that if you know what you're doing. A mere 10 degrees north of the equator, it is a place of heat so intense it can drive a person insane. And yet the waves curling against the seashore deep in the valleys between mountains and the luminous rivers that seem to fall from the sky itself can quench that same person's soul for eternity. 
Trinidad is our fears and our loves. There, we discovered our beings. We dug deep and planted our roots, assuming we would never leave, sucking on the armored cascadura with its silver-plated shell, devouring the sweet flesh beneath. The only fish, the legend says, ties you to the land forevermore, smacking our lips when we are done. We never thought we would leave this place since our mothers and fathers planted our placentas beneath mango and plum, pomegranate and coconut trees. But in the end, we choose to flee. We leave. We do. With no intention of turning back, we embrace America for everything Trinidad was not. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. So, yes, setting as a character... Um, I, I find that setting is really important to me as well. And, and to embrace the setting where I live, because I've too lived many different places in my life and need to find markers of comfort and markers of like companionship, even in the setting, like in, in the natural landscape. Tell us a little bit more about setting and how you feel that it functions like throughout the memoir. Well, so Trinidad as a as a Caribbean island is it's very beautiful. And unlike more touristy islands there it's untouched. It's really just very raw beauty. And I think I wanted to I wanted to use that juxtaposition of what happens with men and women on the island and use the beauty as a backdrop for all the ugliness that happens because everyone has an idea moving leaving leaving the caribbean and moving to america and engaging with people who visit the islands and hearing their perception of what they think it's like there i really wanted to use that as the backdrop of here's what really happens when people live in these beautiful places. Yeah. That like also by evoking the beauty so viscerally and it's about, you know, people who've left Trinidad, then you have this sense of loss in a way that what is being described is no longer accessible. And there's something sort of poignant about that. And it's also, I think I was noticing how outward looking the opening is. So, so many memoirs, you know, start off it's like let me talk about myself me 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 and there's you know and it can be a little tiresome and it's very kind of nice to hear somebody describing I mean almost literally landscape and food and things which are outside of the narrator I don't know there's just something kind of inviting about that Mm -hmm. And, and speaking of you know cultures, landscapes, countries that may may or may not be accessible to us anymore, um, I think I saw in a recent interview, Peter, that you said uh, "Love of Her Life," your most recent short story publication. I think is the first story you've written set in Scotland, even though I think your father's family comes from there and you've lived there mm-hmm. in the past. Um, do you want to speak to that a little bit about how that? So the in the story, the funeral is in the Highlands, but um, the main 
characters, I think based in Edinburgh at that time. And then they take like a funeral bus up into the Highlands and then they need to come back, which is a, a significant journey, right? To, to go to a funeral. It's based on a, in a weird way, an exact experience I had. Um, uh, a, a friend of mine who was quite a bit older, I mean, she was in her 60s, 70s. She died uh, in maybe 2005 or 2006. And I was a pallbearer and the, uh, the funeral was in January in the Highlands. And her house was where the wake was. And it was about a two hour drive between the burial site and the wake at her house. The house is in the sort of lowlands, like almost the Highlands, but not in the Highlands in this place, Pitlockery. And so, yeah, it's a similar thing. Like in reality, there were these two hired buses that escorted people from the burial to the wake. And the first one set off, the one with, which I was in. And then we got over this mountain pass as the snow was coming down. Fine. And then the other bus, which set off maybe 20 minutes later, got stuck on the wrong side of the pass for something like five or six hours. It was a, you know, a raucous and interesting evening, but not that interesting ultimately. And people at the time, you know, said, you should write a story about this. And I was like, I don't know what I would say. There's not actually very interesting stuff here, you know, in a way. It's just sort of, we're all just hanging out. And then I swapped around all the characters, changed all the characters, made, you know, about a woman whose dear friend from university has died much too young in her 40s. And so the burial is the same, the wake is the same, but the cast is completely different. And she's there with her, you know, her ex-husband is there with his new girlfriend. And she basically corners his new girlfriend, her ex-husband's new girlfriend, and ends up kind of stealing his, <laughs> her ex-husband's new girlfriend from him and making her her girlfriend. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it is, uh, you know, pulled from some real life, but I have no idea why I've never written about Scotland, although it's, played such a large role in my life and I'm a dual citizen and I mean, I've spent so much time there. Um, I really have no idea why I've never before been drawn to it as a place to write about. Um, other than that, it's sort of crowded with ghosts for me. A lot of people I've loved have died there. So I sort of avoid it. Right. Right. Well, you know, there's a great interest in Scottish culture right now, mostly due to Outlander, you know, the, the series of books by Diana, Diana Gabaldon and then the TV series. And then, you know, the characters of, you know, the people who portray the characters have become quite popular. And I think that probably is what spurred my interest, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I first read Outlander. Um, but when I moved to Las Vegas, I got involved in the Highland Games. And for the past several years, I've been the chairperson for the whiskey tasting. For I do well, yeah, so it's it's been fun, and I've learned a lot about whiskey. And I taught myself about Irish whiskey as well because it's a, a Celtic festival. And so I ended up giving talks on Irish whiskey and um, learning more about Scotch from other folks, and then bourbon along the way too, because you know all those traditions are related and how the Scots came over to America and didn't have an of, you know, grain. So they had to result to corn and, you know, um, but anything, anyway, the, the whole thing is that there's such a richness there, right? There's such a rich richness in that environment, mostly because of its starkness, which I think is a stark contrast to the lushness of, you know, Trinidad and Tobago. But, but any, I think really any environment, any setting can really be like, 
you know, maximized if you spend the time bringing it to life on the page. And, and you can't always start with it, right? You can't always, you know, start with a bunch of setting, but the way that Crystal's woven it in and the way that you've woven in it in as well, I think really does help draw the reader in and helps the environment or the setting be like kind of an extra character, almost like an omnipotent or like omnipresent character that, um, guides the plot like you know your character you know the ex-husband wouldn't have you know been delayed several hours if you know you hadn't been caught in the snow in the past right so the the weather the environment the the landscape you know just the fact that there's this massive pass that they need to get through and there's two separate buses creates all that cool tension and then also creates the opportunity for the two women to connect. So yeah, it's just it's just really in both these. It's just tricky. It's tricky for me to realize when to step back. But also by you you putting the starkness of Scotland just right next to the lushness of Trinidad made it seem like me and Peter should just get together and write a book. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. That would be yeah, sure. <laughs> the starkness with the lushness sounds really good. It'd be fun to have a character go from one to the other. Yeah, yeah, and I've been I've been kind of exploring that in my own writing. With um, I live in the desert now, but I grew up in like the lushness of Kentucky. And in fact, when I go back to Kentucky now, it's kind of like you just what you describe in your book how the lushness almost strangles the atmosphere. Right? It's it's like too much. I go back to Kentucky and I just feel so hemmed in. Like there's just so many trees and the grass is knee high. And, and I'm just used to this barrenness now. I've been here almost a decade. I mean, the desert, you know, is full of wildlife and, you know, all kinds of flora and fauna, but it's just not the way that you get in like a more humid, like lush, out of control growth environment, right? Like everything here is struggling to survive. And you, and if you go out in the desert, it's kind of like the highlands. I think I've, I've been there too. And I had this kind of feeling as well. Like everything like in the desert wants to kill you, right? As a human, it doesn't want you there. It wants, it wants to eradicate you. And the highlands feels a little bit like that too. And that is just so stark and so harsh, so cold, so windy, so rocky, you know, and then even the vegetation there seems sort of stunted in some places like it does here in the desert. But I, I just love that both, both in both these pieces and um, in other work you've done that I've, that I've read um, just the exploration of, of setting. I'm very much into that myself as a reader and a writer. I have a question for you, Peter, about, about something you said very early on that just really stuck with me. And it's, you said you wrote, a couple of novels, you wrote a number of stories, and then you had to let them go. And I want you to talk about that a little bit. How do you know when to let something go? Especially if you have something big like a novel. How and what's the process like of letting that go? Well, I mean, walking I away? My first, well, each time there was a, usually a pretty clear signal from the world. I mean, the first book I ever wrote, I showed it to somebody, a good friend, and he basically said, like, show this to no one else. Uh, <laughs> oh like, That's what friends are for, you know, very appreciative. And then um, I, my second one, I, it was stronger, and I sent it around to agents, 
And they were interested in reading it, but when they read it, they wrote back sort of unanimously saying like, uh, you forgot to include a plot, please try again. And I was like, oh, right. I knew I was forgetting something. And then (laughs) (laughs) um, after that, after my second novel came out, I was like, I am going, I love reading these like mysteries by Tana French and uh, and these thrillers by various people. And I'm going to try to write a literary thriller or mystery or something. And I wrote, I must have been the majority or a complete book, maybe two or I think three of these books. I wrote three of them. One set in Sri Lanka, one set in Mexico. And then I wrote, I'm almost, yeah, I wrote a complete mystery set in Seattle. And each one failed. Like, it just truly didn't work. And I I mean, I could, it took me a couple years per one, maybe. And and in the end, it just felt deeply inauthentic. Like, it just didn't feel like me. Like, I don't know how to explain it any other way. I just was, like, wearing a very non-convincing costume or something and like really poorly reciting my lines. Like I just couldn't handle whatever is required to write that kind of book in an authentic way. I mean, for one thing, like my third book, it was about a, you know, homicide detective. And like, I can't even begin to imagine what that is like, like choosing to do that. I interviewed all sorts of detectives and stuff and talked to them and read books by them and stuff. And I, it's still utterly incomprehensible to me. And so how am I going to write from the perspective of a person who's made that fundamental choice and in any way make it convincing? I I don't know. I mean, there are people who do this, obviously, many people, and they do a, a wonderful job of it, but I just could not do it to save my life. And so now I'm writing another book. My agent seems excited about it. Other people seem excited about it. But it's just me. You know what I mean? It's just more me. Like, it's like my short stories. It's like, it's not my life. It's a character who has who I have very little in common with, but it's it's clearly authentically coming out of me. Okay, so when you when you some you kind of breeze over this, right? I'm just so fascinated by this because then you write so you write this book, you realize you don't have a plot. You never tried to fix it. You just let it go. You, it wouldn't have been I don't know how you would have fixed it. It was it yeah, it wouldn't have worked. It did like how do you edit for a plot? There's no plot whatsoever. Like the character Oh, I has, see. There was absolutely nothing. Like okay. it moved in reverse chronological order, the chapters did. And so the character is in Ecuador for two years. He's HIV positive. This is the late nineties. Uh, he's a painter, a quite a successful painter in the New York art world. And he's just kind of hanging out doing all these paintings, a series of paintings of his ex-lovers. Like things happen, but it's there's not a real storyline per se. Like he's just in Ecuador for two years doing paintings, which, you know, that that kind of book can work. Sure. I didn't have the chops at the time to pull off a book like that, which he's just basically hanging out. You know, the reverse chronological order thing sounds good in theory, but in practice, uh, there's no tension, obviously, because you know what's going to happen at the end from the very first page and it couldn't be undone. So I don't know. Like, yeah, in each case, it was just like, it was painful, but you have to accept it. I mean, it's definitely painful, but like, I don't know. Um, it sounds you know, very painful. Well, I wish I could stop writing. Like, I wish I had, you know, done something else with my life, but I seem incapable of not writing. And I also seem like it feels like I'm I'm not good at anything else. So what else am I going to do? <laughs> like, I could go and try and sell real estate or something, but I'm probably not going to do a very good job of that. Do you think in any possibility you could return to it now and make it? I've thought of that. Um, I think I, I actually, actually, I did pick up one of them a couple of years ago, the one in Ecuador, I, and it was seventy thousand words long. And I swear, in like a week, I cut it down to fifty thousand words. It was 
just so like I was such a better writer and editor. I was just like, oh my God, Peter, Jesus Christ. Um, and so I just easily slashed 20,000 words out of it. And it was like, yeah, it's cool. But like, you know, maybe with an incredibly small press, that's like, I want to do this weird artsy book that is, you know, sort of plotless and has some lovely sentences in it and some unusual characters and unusual situations. But like, I don't know. I would read a little boutique book, but again, I mean, I think there are probably 500 people. Well, there's like 500 people who would want to read it. And, you know, that's very good if you have a university paying your budget and you don't have to sell books for money. But anyone who makes a, you know, any company that, you know, wants to put a barcode on an object and sell, you know, 20,000 copies of it to make, to break even, they're going to just, you know, they're not going to be happy. Unless if I become famous and then they'll be delighted. I suspect that Jonathan Lethem once did that. Like one of his books later on in his life, I think was one he dragged out of his drawer where he put it when he was less successful. And then, you know, Doubleday or whatever was like, oh, this is magnificent. And they probably rejected the exact same book, you know, 20 years earlier. (laughs) (laughs) It, It really does depend on the current climate too. Like, you know, what's hot. And like in many cases, it has a lot to do with who you are, you know. Collections of short stories by Tom Hanks or whatever are perfectly fine, but mm-hmm. collections of short stories by not Tom Hanks are a little harder to sell. The certain certain cachet of the name there and the and the yeah. notoriety. I think it's um, just yeah, money. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, well, Peter, yeah, you've done a great <laughs> job today of telling it real to all our listeners. Like try not if to, I could uh, do anything other than be a writer, I would. <laughs> Just, I mean, what's the first, the first sentence of Lori Moore's how to become a writer. Yeah. Uh, the first sentence is first do something, anything else. else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so speaking of something else, what what are the other things we're, we're going to segue? It's going to be a hard, kind of hard segue into our mood board segment. What what are the other things you're doing in life? You know, I mentioned before that I do whiskey tastings, but actually, what I'm what I'm doing now, and I, I do find this very fruitful. It's my weekly lesson in humility. Is I've begun to train for heavy athletics for Highland Games, which, if you're not familiar, it's essentially throwing rocks and trees as far as you can. And I can pick a tree as we call it, which essentially means pick it up without killing yourself. I can pick a tree, but I can't toss it (laughs) yet. Um, I've been doing this for about a year, uh, a little on and off. I'm not as regular as I should be. So, so this is one of my activities that takes me outside, um, challenges me in ways that I am not challenged by sitting at my desk, writing, reading, editing, podcasting, yada, yada. But I do find a certain like, you know, I get a little oomph out of it, you know, I get that carries me through the rest of the week. And and it's definitely, I'm definitely bad at it. Definitely cannot throw things far, like cannot do this, but I continue to do it because I feel like it's actually part of my creative process. What are the things that you're doing in your life? And it could just be, you know, TV, radio, other podcasts that you love, books that you're reading. Like what are the other things that you're doing, food that you're cooking that help fuel or sustain your creative practice and I, i'm gonna answer for crystal she's spent, according to her instagram she spent the summer at the beach every day yes it was yeah the beach in jersey or the beach in tahoe i didn't know was, that as well it was, it was a, a deluge it was, of beach it was very beachy 
It was very it beachy. Was. That's what this <laughs> means me. Good, good. Yeah, so there's a note, you know, it, there's a, a line in the beginning of your memoir about staying near the water, staying near the shore. And that's definitely like, if, if you're a water person, you definitely need that in your life. And then, and then what other things do you need in your life, Crystal? Oh, see, I thought Peter was going to answer. I didn't, <laughs> think he was, I didn't think he was just going to call me out on my answer. <laughs> so I do, I do a lot. Um, I was thinking about the question when you first asked it, and I can't stop moving. I think because writing requires me to sit down and be still and write that everything else that helps me fuel that kind of creative energy is me moving. And so when I can be in the water, which is not very long in New Jersey, so it's really two, two and a half months that you can be in the water. I'm there. I try to take the summers off. I mean, I can't really do it because there's this need to write. So I do try to go to the beach almost every day and it can be any beach and anywhere around the world. I spent a lot of time in Spain and France this summer. And for the first time I was in the Mediterranean Sea. I've never been there before. And I mean, I I I will sit on a beach and I will cry at how beautiful it is. And I will stay in the water for like 10 hours. So water definitely helps a lot. Swimming is wonderful. But to really sustain my creative practice, I do things like dancing. I've been salsa dancing for about 10 years now. And I absolutely love the, the feel of my body moving. So salsa is very interesting. It, because it requires me to give up control, which is very difficult for me. And I, I dance with my partner and he's not a very good dancer and I am a very good dancer. And so it is really hard for us to meet in the middle. And now in dancing, the, the language, the body language is the man has to tell you what to do, the lead, the man, whoever, they have to tell you what to do with cues, right? And I'm always trying to tell him what I want him to tell me to do. And it doesn't work that way in salsa. He has to initiate the move. And so in the beginning, when we, when we would first start, it's like, do this one, do that one. And then our instructor would come and say, Crystal, you stop it. You have to stop. You can't do that. You're not the lead. And so it's been a learning process and it's taught me to compromise and to give up control a little bit. And so because that requires so much giving up of control, I turn to another kind of dancing where I'm completely in control. And I do this also weekly. I do this Bollywood fusion dance class where uh, we learn choreography and we do performances. So I do that weekly in the... The minute it gets cold, really, I'm like, okay, let's sign up for dancing so I can do something else. And I play the cello. I've been learning to play the cello over the last four or five years. I put it down for over a year, so I need to go back to it. But I find music. I just I just love that. I find the cello. Honestly, if someone say, why did you choose the cello? It's because it's such a sexy instrument. I find it so sexy. And you literally have to put this thing between your legs as you play. And then you have to have an ear for it's a, it's a stringed instrument or something where you have to feel it. You have to feel the music rather than something that's very precise, like a piano. 
You have to listen and you have to feel for it. So those are some of the things that I'm constantly doing when I'm writing to keep going. Very nice. I like that. Love cello too. Just the sound of it is so gorgeous. I currently have a, a learning violin player in my house, which- Oh God, I can't do I'm sorry. I can't do that. I took the violin away from her. <laughs> she's actually, she's getting much better, but she um, is also a guitar major at her arts, her high school- uh, arts academy and that is lovely like she's actually a couple years ahead of herself on the guitar than she is on the violin and so i can listen to guitar all day classical guitar spanish guitar but the violin i had to say um not after 9 p.m <laughs> <laughs> it is rough but she's getting better she's getting infinitely better you're a better um, person than me because i took the violin away and i said pick another <laughs> instrument yeah. Well, my parents listened to my clarinet and my saxophone squawking for many, many years. So I felt like I was due. And I still break out the clarinet and squawk around the house sometimes <laughs> as part of my creative process. There's a lot of squeaking and squawking because my embouchure is shit now. But, um, you know, I, I felt like maybe I'm I'm due a little bit of that karma. So <laughs> I've been suffering through the violin for a couple years now. Uh, Peter, what's, what's going on in your house and your world that helps you maintain, you know, the, that sense of creativity and that flow for you? What's going on? I love, I've been playing tennis a lot. I'm very bad at it. I'm not like super bad, but I'm medium bad at tennis. And I, uh, I play it weekly now and I got a membership at the indoor place because I live in Seattle and that's necessary uh, for like nine tenths of the year or something. But uh, it is, you know, it, it does a lot for just mental health and just enjoying life for me. I just really enjoy it. It's the only form of physical exercise that I enjoy, I think, but that's helpful. But I think ultimately my routine, my writing routine as such is, is really what has helped me the most. And I, it's changed in the last five, 10 years, but I go, I wake up early, really early five in the morning and I go to this kind of depressing Starbucks. Um, it's uh, not a pleasant place. I mean, it's fine but it's not remarkable. And that's what I like about it. And I go there and I'm there at five 30 and I uh, sit at the, in the corner and I just focus on my writing for two to three hours until the place is kind of packed with people getting their morning coffee. And then I go home and start my normal day. But that routine, that sort of repetition of that thing, that schedule, I think is definitely what enables me to actually write and uh, as opposed to like, I don't know, something else. But yeah, I think that's it. I think you did recently an interview, famous writing routines. Oh, right. Yes, yeah, I Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little about, bit. Yeah, they asked about my writing routines. And so I talked a bit about that. Um, and I talked about, I have a home office as well, which I don't use that much. I mean, I guess it's so weird. Like I have a home office, which I am right now, where I do my teaching usually. It's in my basement it used to be my garage but i had it converted and then i also at least temporarily have a membership at WeWork. you know that whatever it is and so i go there sometimes in the afternoons to like do teaching stuff and then i go to starbucks i think it's just add but like i apparently have like three different offices i go to uh to do work um i don't know it's nice to be around people i, I find that interesting like the being around people at starbucks or WeWork is somehow helpful to me somehow Oh, that's so interesting. I can't do that. I can't. I'm so distracted by people. I'll end up talking to them. And so I need to stay home. Yeah, I put earphones in, so nobody talks to anyone. 
yeah, I have. I think it's helpful for me to go away. I'm surprised WeWork is still around, though. I know. They had this scandal. It was uh, apparently a fiasco. Um, They are amazingly bad at collecting money from people. It's it's incredible how bad they are at the basic thing that is being a business. Um, I've had, like, all of these support tickets. I'm like... They're like, yo, it's $150. I'm like, here's my credit card. And they're like, uh, we don't understand what's going on. And then they like send me, they put me on the phone with like six different people. They send me like 20 emails. I'm like, dude, just run the credit card. You're right. going to be okay. Just, <laughs> like, I just want my spot. So like, just. I don't know. Like yeah. any like business, it's like two people. And it's like out of someone's garage can figure this out. Why can't you figure this out? All right. Well, this has been lovely. Any any final thoughts? Any burning questions that we should address before we sign off? No, thank you so much. I don't think so, but thank you so much, Courtney. This was wonderful. Thank you for listening to PWN's debut review. This podcast is hosted by Project Right Now, a nonprofit writing studio. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Please follow, rate, and review wherever you listen. And stay tuned because our next debut could be you. PWN's debut review is produced by Jennifer Chohan and edited by Adam Wells and Lisa Hartsgrove. The theme song, Don't Look Away, was written and performed by Mimi Cross and produced by Kevin Salem. Questions, comments, suggestions? Email us at debutreview at projectrightnow.org.